This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show coming up are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity coming up. How we're going to be interviewing a film director uh, whose film um, played at the recent Newport Beach Film Festival. Um, this is our pledge drive uh, right now, and um, we'll be we'll be um, actually uh, calling for people to uh, support the station and support this show in particular. Uh, if you call or if you um, go to the website, uh, actually we suggest um, during this hour to go to the website at kuci.org and um, there'll be a screen there, a link there to Fundrive. Click on that and you can see what kind of premiums we have. Uh, Lots of CDs, lots of CDs. Uh, Also KUCI t-shirts. For $35, you will get, uh, you can get a t-shirt, a bumper sticker, uh, assorted KUCI material uh, for the basic membership of $35. So you can go to KUCI.org and you can pledge online. Now, there's an option for you to pledge online and you can fill it out. Um, so that's at KUCI.org. For those who can support the station and would like to, we'd like you to support the public affairs programming, especially on the station, that have brought you all sorts of alternative viewpoints that you cannot find um, on mainstream media. Uh, And we are the only, I believe, only Orange County-based radio uh, station that broadcasts both music and alternative music and uh, public affairs. So we'll be um, we'll be uh, airing a program momentarily about a Cuban film, a new film on Cuban American, on the Cuban exile community, and the fissions within it. That's coming up on this edition of Subversity here on KUCI.org. The Subversity website is KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G. Hi, uh, welcome to this edition of Subversity here on KUCI. Uh, we, uh, we will be talking with a, d- a woman film director of a film about a Cuban-American um, called The Man of Two Havanas. Uh, welcome, Vivian Lessig, um Thank you, Dan. Wiseman. Yeah, yeah, you come in loud and clear. Uh, why did you make this film? It's an autobiographical film about you and your fa- uh, father, basically. Yes, um, I made the film um, because I wanted to really understand my father. And uh, in order to understand my father, I had to understand his passion which is Cuba. So I immersed myself in my father's uh, obsession, if you will. Um, My father in Cuba was a revolutionary. He was a good friend of Fidel Castro. And when 
the revolution came to power and they aligned themselves with the Soviet Union, my father disagreed with that. He was for a free Cuba, a sovereign Cuba. Uh, that's what he had fought the revolution for, not a Soviet satellite. So he left to Miami but when, with the family. But when he arrived in Miami, he found himself in a third position, which was not shared by practically anyone. Um, he and a small group of revol high-ranking revolutionaries arrived in Miami, and their position was that they were both against the Cuban government as well as against the U.S. policy toward Cuba. Now, at this time, it was you're either with us or you're against us. Um, in other words, the Cuban exiles were uh, being trained by the CIA for the Bay of Pigs and beyond, as we know now. And if you didn't take the line, we have to kill Castro, we have to invade Cuba, we have to uh, finish off with Cuba, um, and, you know, with, by any means, then you basically were branded as a subversive as, and as a communist. Now, my father's line of uh, this third position later evolved to include uh, dialogue with Castro, um, peaceful relations between Cuba and the United States. And ironically, because of that position uh, for peace that he took, uh, he, he, uh, a war was waged against him. He became the number one target of the anti-Castro terrorists in the United States. And the film uh, covers this period between the 70s and the 80s that a lot of Americans don't know. Uh, Miami experienced uh, what you could call a reign of terror. There were as many as seven bombings in one day and hundreds of bombings per year. Uh, and my father was, was the target, and so was my family. And so it really is also a personal story about my growing up in, the, in a climate of violence. How, how, how old were you when you came? I'm sorry? How old were you when you came to America? Um, I was six months old, America. so I don't remember Cuba as a baby. Um, but I went back to Cuba to film my movie. Ah. And um, so you grew up under all this tension. and Did you feel the tension, uh, you know, all these uh, threats against your dad? Well, we were, my sister and I, my sister's three years older than me, we were very much aware of what was going on, and we lived with, you know, within the environment that, you know, maybe my dad wouldn't come home one night. But at the same time, when you're a kid and you don't know anything different, you learn how to have a somewhat normal existence within that not normal environment. So um, did you uh, check for bombs too? Uh, right, yeah. We, 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 <laughs> my sister and I were shown how to check for bombs under the car. Um, wow. But we really didn't, you know pay much attention to that. We just did it like pro forma because, you know, I don't know that that uh, we would have known what a bomb looked like if, you know, underneath with all those other wires and things that cars seem to have. In the, in the film you say, uh, I think I remember you saying that um, you thought this was the normal childhood of uh, any kid in, in uh, Little Havana. We didn't know anything different. So m my sister and I thought that that's you know, it's like a kid growing up in a war zone. You don't really can very much envision what it would be like living in any other way. So if you don't know anything different, you assume that the whole world lives that way. And um, how did you, when did you come, uh, at the beginning, did you think your father was just very uh, too obsessed 
uh, you didn't understand why, right? Oh, okay, yeah. You know, the, in the movie, um, I go through a transformation from basically rejecting uh, my father's obsession, which is Cuba. And there's an ironic, you know, uh, line in the film where I say that they stole my father's attention and I hated them for it. Um, I mean, it really was a rejection of everything that was... Uh, that had affected my childhood. And then at the end of the film, and again, this is condensed for dramatic purposes, that transformation took place over a period of years, but, but I play with that at the beginning of the film in my narration. Um, and then in, in the end, you know, I realized that his obsession and his commitment to his beliefs is really what all of us should uh, strive for, to not um, be afraid... Uh, to marginalize oneself, and he did to the extent that he was, you know, vilified and a target of violence, um, uh, in order to, you know, stand up for what we believe in. I think it's a, a message that, as Americans, we need to hear today. Do you, uh, and that was because you went back to Cuba and you realized uh, what he was fighting for. Dan, when I went back to Cuba um, and I... Um, became uh, familiar with the realities of the Cuban people, um, it, I realized very quickly that, first of all, that they, these are, you know, my brothers as well. Um, and also I realized that the U.S. policy toward Cuba, specifically the economic embargo, um, has had a great toll on the Cuban people and um, how unjust the embargo is and how it was a very uh, his my father's struggle is very worthwhile did you, uh, did your family feel that way too um, I mean your, your sister and your mother well my mother always uh, supported my father hmm. and I won't say that my sister and I did not support my father I mean my, my sister and I knew that what he was doing was important. We just didn't really want to be a part of it because it was very painful and it just brought us grief. And as kids, you just want to play with everybody. You don't want to hear that, oh, somebody's kids don't want to come over for a play date because if they were Cuban, they wouldn't come over because they thought they didn't want to play with the child of a communist. That's what he was <laughs> branded. And if they weren't Cuban, if they were some other nationality, then they, I mean, these bombings were publicized, so they were afraid for their children, which is natural. Oh, yeah, So sure. we really only played with my parents' friends, you know, the children of my parents' friends. So, you know, it's, a kid never wants to be different. Were you, uh, were you told not to go over to certain f families' homes because you know, they were, like, extremists? Or you know, that's really interesting because um, we didn't know any of the extremists that were practicing terrorism, but one of my dearest friends um, from junior high on through high school was the daughter of the dictator, Fulgencio Batista, the granddaughter, oh, wow. sorry, Fulgencio Batista, the, fought, the, the, the government my father had first fought against, right. and both, his, both her family and my family always took great pains to be very polite, because uh. interestingly, they also felt that, you know, the children shouldn't be exposed to whatever politics oh, wow. their parents may have. So it wasn't just my family that was, had suffered so much under intolerance that thought, well, we're going to be very tolerant toward, you know, 
Florencio Batista's granddaughter. But that family as well, who was not directly involved in politically in Miami, was also very kind to me also, and I thought really took great pains to let me know that everything was okay. Did you personally suffer any... Uh like attacks by people like screaming at you or whatever no you know i witnessed it but personally no i didn't actually no it was more a, a silent rejection and i wasn't it, sometimes i wasn't even aware of it but as people would disappear from my life it would always it became obvious to me that the, the reason uh did your father sit you down and then explain what was going on at the at the beginning or um... you know it really wasn't like that i don't know I mean, if it was just another generation, but they didn't yeah. really sit you down. You were just like in the mix. You know, re remember in in the in the movie, I explained how my father had a magazine that was. They yeah. were not bombing our house; they were bombing his offices. Replica. Yes, Replica magazine. And so, at the beginning, Replica magazine was was uh, the offices were inside the garage of my house. Oh. So I was about five, six years old then. They're um, maybe a little older, and my sister and I were really part of that. So we were just in the mix. We would overhear things, you know, if there was going to be a drive-by shooting, like I explained in the film. <laughs> um, you know, basically they would close the curtains, and we would all sit around. You know, the people that were uh, yeah. making the magazine and working there, twenty people sitting in the living room, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, staying up to see whether or not there would actually be a drive-by shooting and talking about politics. And my sister and I were awake. We didn't have a bedtime, and that's what we'd be doing. So we wouldn't, we were never sat down and said, you know, it's, you know, explain the process, but we very much picked it up through osmosis because we were never excluded. Yeah, it seems uh, very similar to the situation here in uh, Little Saigon where there are a lot of uh, Vietnamese exiles and yes. where there was an embargo also for many years. Yes. And uh, there were a few people that, uh, were actually killed, uh, or the the uh, in California, and then people uh, offices were firebombed, and and as we speak, there are actually demonstrations uh, going on um, this um, uh, on the weekend. I think there's one against an alternative paper, uh, a Vietnamese paper, yeah, and also another one against a mainstream Vietnamese paper, accusing them of being communists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's similar, yes. Is it like there was no? Uh, they didn't want free speech, uh, so they were acting like in a way that what they accused the communists of uh, acting like. Yes, that that was very prevalent in Miami as well. I think that um, that the, in Miami it lasted a very long time because during the Vietnamese War there were not Vietnamese refugees here. Um, but I, I can understand that the same climate of intolerance mm -hmm. would exist in both uh, communities. Um, in 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 the Cuban community, it was so backed by the U.S. government um, that position. And uh, now, you know, now after the Cold War, what we're experiencing is blowback. Um, uh -huh. We're experiencing, you know, the seeds of uh, the fruit of the seeds that were planted by the aggressive violent U.S. policy toward Cuba, um, in, in specifically in the, the terrorists that were trained by the CIA to invade Cuba, and um, they have, you know, continued to, to perform terrorist acts and they're, they're, the world. And they're not, um, they're not um, punished by the U.S.? Yes, um, of course, we're both speaking specifically about Luis Posada Carriles, who is living in Miami. And, and he... Uh, he was instrumental in blowing up a airplane. Yes, in uh, Luis Posada Carriles and Orlando Bosch, uh, 
who both live in Miami um, under the protection of the U.S. government. Um, and in my film, I explain how you know, many corrupt acts led to that. Um, they were, uh, they blew up, a bom uh, they bombed a Cubana airliner in 1976 that had the entire Cuban fencing team. It was a, uh, a they were returning from the Pan American Games, a victorious uh, team, uh, many teenagers uh, on on the plane, and they blew it up in midair. Mm. Um, and interestingly, it the it was blown up um, with a tube of toothpaste that had C4 plastic. Uh, they went into the bathroom and, and uh, the, you know, the two people that had been hired by these people, the two Venezuelans, and they blew up the plane with uh, plastic explosives. This is the reason that we, uh, you know, because of the London incident, that we cannot take a, more than a certain amount of liquids on an airplane. But, but ironically, um, the people that actually performed this act that took liquids onto an airplane, the, the masterminds for blowing up uh, a, an airline in midair, the first act of airline terrorism in the Western Hemisphere was performed by these two Cubans, and they live in Miami, and they are free. Is it, uh, was there any CIA connection to this? They were both... Uh, both Orlando Bosch and Luis Posada Carriles were trained by the CIA. They were in the payroll of the CIA for a long, long time. Um, and Luis Posada was uh, the head of uh, uh, of operations in the in in what later became the Iran Contra scandal. He was based in El Salvador, paid by the CIA. So this is a long history of CIA involvement. Um, I do, I do not know that, that I do not think there was any direct involvement by, by the CIA, but um, what there's there is uh, substantial evidence that was uh, declassified by the uh, by the National Security Archive that says that the unit United States government was aware of the fact that a Cuban airplane was going to be blown up. Um, in 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 the next several months, that there was a plan in hatched in the Dominican Republic to blow up a Cuban airliner, and uh, the United States intelligence did not inform the Cubans of this extraordinary intelligence that may have prevented um, the actual tragedy. So, how many how many people were killed? Seventy three persons. Wow, including uh, uh, five Korean medical students that were on their way to Cuba um, mm. to take part in a scholarship that they had received. So they were in their early 20s. They were uh, stellar students that had received scholarships. The Cuban fencing team, um, it, they were all civilians and a, a lot of young people. From uh, the Korean from North Korea? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the film you show a memorial uh, session that goes on. Is that, does that happen every day, every year? to commemorate the victims of this uh, terrorism act? Well, every year they have, um, uh, they have on October uh, 3rd, they have a, October 6th, sorry, um, they commemorate the, the heroes because they've been canonized. They, they're mm -hmm. um, really the martyrs, one of the, the martyrs of the revolution. So really th every year this wound is, revisited and um, I think that there w w could be tremendous healing mm. 
if um, if the persons responsible for it were actually um, condemned for it by the U.S. government, but that's not the case. Yeah, because the American position, of course, the U.S. government position is uh, you're not a terrorist if you're a friend of the U.S., if you're doing stuff that U.S. wants you to do. My film, um, uh, I try to point out that contradiction, the double standard that we have on terror. Uh, a person like Luis Posada Carriles, if he was Middle Eastern, I mean, he would be in Guantanamo. And oh, yeah. there's persons that, with much less evidence, you have to understand, Dan, that three intelligence services, the Cuban, the Venezuelan, and the U.S. intelligence, the CIA, rarely agree on anything. They All three intelligence departments agree that Orlando Bosch and Luis Posada Carriles were the masterminds of the blowing up of the Cubana airliner. Wow. And so it's so hypocritical then. If you, if you know that incident, if you see your, your film, if uh, people see your film, you realize how, um, how uh, kind of grandstanding uh, George Bush is when she, he speaks out against terrorism. Yes, it, it really, I mean, I juxtapose that in the film. Um, right. It's very, very obvious to, to anyone who wants to have a look that, that, that we are, that it, it really, the case of Luis Posada just completely uh, discredits our, our uh, so-called war on terror. Yeah, it's a similar situation in the Vietnamese community. There's a, there's a group that was trying to overthrow the Vietnamese government and its leader was killed. And, and now the group has merged into an, a democracy group, yes. uh, Viet, uh, Viet Tam, uh, Reform Party, and uh, they lobby the government and they lobby, uh, they meet with congressional aides. And so there was nothing done against them, but, the, uh, but another person, uh, Vang Pao, who used to work for the CIA, uh, was arrested uh, for trying to overthrow La- uh, Laotian government. So, so it shows that if there's, uh, you know, it's just sometimes if the government, um, I mean, the government could change here. I mean, we're going to have an election. Um, but do you see any difference between the Democrats and the Republicans on this? I know in your film you show that Carter did something um, earlier. Yes. Well, um, President Carter was actually, uh, his, his uh, presidency was an anomaly. He was, the, he was the only president to date that hasn't advocated um, the overthrow of the Cuban government, um, the and and this this ridiculous policy of aggression, economic aggression. Now, um, uh, there was no the Clinton administration is perhaps the administration that has been the worst for Cuba huh. because they um, codified the embargo in the Helms Burton law, which means that before the Clinton Clinton um, signed on that law. The, the embargo could have been revoked by a presidential edict with a stroke of a pen, and now we need to take a congressional and uh, vote, a, a vote of Congress and the Senate. Um, but at the at the same time, uh, this new uh, election that's coming up, um, Senator Obama would clearly be the best candidate. Um, on the Cuba issue, um, he has said that he would sit down and speak to whoever was the head of the government in Cuba. See, the thing is that dialogue and diplomacy is the way America is, uh, espouses to deal with differences. This is new that we just come right out and say, well, we won't sit down at the negotiation table and, you know, that we, we don't try 
to talk and negotiate before we invade countries. This is, this is a phenomenon of, of the Bush administration. Right. Um, and now it's become the modus operandi because um, Senator Clinton said she would not sit down and speak with the Cuban government without preconditions. But, I mean, the whole idea of mm. sitting down is of sitting down without preconditions is how you allow, you know, in diplomacy 101, right. how you allow the other government to fa- save face within their country. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it's, it's obvious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But look at what uh, Kada encountered by going over to talk to Hamas, and now he's criticized by the administration for, and, you know, you know, for doing amazing. that. amazing. Yeah. He has accomplished so much as a former president, and yet um, in this climate of intolerance, he's he's vilified. But um, do you you still uh, in the film you show uh, your uh, your relationships with uh, people who are living over there, including uh, um, you know a, a woman you were in the kitchen with and you were making uh, food yes. with. Uh, maybe you could talk about that uh, that encounter and yes, that relationship. Yes, I became uh, very friendly with the daughter of what has widely been considered the number three person in Cuba, Ricardo Alarcon, who's the head of the equivalent of our Congress. Um, and he, he was, for many years, the U.N. ambassador from Cuba. Um, and so she grew up in New York, and she speaks perfect English, she has a New York accent, and she really, truly um, is someone that I related to a great deal because she grew up in New York when they were bombing the Cuban embassy. The Cuban embassy was a target. They used to send Hmm. uh, gifts um, that were, you know, uh, rigged, and, you know, and and she had to have bodyguards, uh, and so it really got in the way of her being a normal, even though she was Cuban, a normal diplomatic kind of American teenager that wanted to go to concerts. Um, So we really had uh, similar analogous experiences growing up, but we never, we didn't know each other until we met in Cuba. And now... um, Oh, I thought you went to college together. No, 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 we met in Cuba. But, you know, we quickly became, we became fast friends. And, um, and, and uh, I, you know, I, I mused about, well, you know, if my father had stayed because my father was a high-ranking revolutionary, maybe my reality would be her reality. Right. And so it was very interesting to me. You know, well, what, how would I live? What would my life be like um, if I was her? So it became, uh, you know, it, it, in the film, it becomes a way of showing how, you know, we're all the same and we all have our counterparts in countries that are verbatim that we're not supposed to visit, that we're not supposed to be friends with. And actually when it, everything breaks down and it's just on a human level, on a one-to-one, um, it's the governments that are at odds, not the people. On, on the one-to-one uh, relationship uh, of, in terms of visits, uh, one can only do it one, once every few years? And Yes. The, yeah. the, the, um, when Carter went to... To, you mentioned what what Carter was able to accomplish, and I think I didn't. Um, we didn't get into that. But when Carter went in, in 1976 to Cuba, um, uh, he didn't go, but actually he allowed uh, a group of 100 Cuban Americans to go negotiate with the Cuban government, and it was they went to negotiate for the U.S. government by proxy. They uh, the Castro released 3,500 political prisoners. Um, that was that's like one of the things that diplomacy can achieve, because whenever the 
candidates for president talk about preconditions to speak with Castro, what they're talking about usually the next sentence is, you know, we do not, we, we, we have solidarity with the political prisoners that are in Cuba, and I think there's several hundred is the number. Um, and uh, what, Card, what, well, this is Carter, Carter's stance of talking without preconditions got, you know, in two weeks' time, 3,500 political prisoners released. So it, it really is kind of this grandstanding that's just in the way of settling things. Um, but um, I'm off the point that I was going to make. Um, the, the other thing that, that Carter did was he allowed for the first time for the Cubans living in the United States to visit their family on the island, and that was called the family exception to the embargo. Well, that had been in effect and had never been revoked. Um, but the Bush administration, in order to garner more votes from the right-wing Cuban Americans from Miami in the 2003 electoral campaign, he uh, tightened the embargo further. And his target was the Cubans living in Miami. He limited their visits to Cuba. So Cubans were allowed to go once a year to visit their family under this exception. And it was a general license. They didn't have to ask for permission. They just had to say, I'm going to go visit my family member, and family member was not defined. Mm -hmm. Now, what Cuba, what, what the Bush administration did is they changed that from once a year to every three years, and they defined very narrowly what the family is. And you being of um, Vietnamese descent, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually Chinese. Hong, Chinese, Hong, yeah. yes, but you, we've been talking about the Vietnamese community, sorry. But of Asian descent, you realize that we, and the Latins as well, have extended families. Sure, for sure. Um, well, co first cousins are not considered family, so if what you have in Cuba is a first cousin, no. If what you have in Cuba is an aunt, even if that aunt raised you, no. You can't go visit mm. her at all, so you're not allowed to visit Cuba because it's very narrowly defined family. And if you do have a mother, for example, um, you can go visit her once every three years. But there's no emergency exception, which means that if you go to Cuba to visit your mother this year and you hear six months later she's on her deathbed, you can't go visit her. You have to wait three years later and visit her grave. Um, it's an <laughs> inhumane policy. Yeah, so much for like bringing families together. This um, yes. motto of the Republican right. <laughs> yes, yeah. you're right. <laughs> the uh, but you you were able to go under journalist uh, exception, right? Yes, exemption, whatever exception. Yeah. Yes. And your father also. Yes, because and he, you uh, yeah. you would be able to go as well. The the right. one of the only exceptions to the embargo that still stands is. The humanitarian and the journalist exception. Also, the academic actually. And, ah, in the religious. Yeah, yeah UC has a. Uh, we actually uh, this weekend the UC uh, Cuba initiative was meeting here at Irvine. That's a group of academics that mm -hmm. uh, are doing research in Cuba. Yeah, but that's not a that that that's not a general license. It's a specific license. They oh, have it's to a specific ask for permission to go. Oh, we. Um, they used to have the cultural license, which means that if I wanted, if 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 an artist wanted to go to Cuba, he could go because he was going to visit other artists, and uh, it was very easy to go. And all those things now have required a great deal of paperwork, and they're not all, and they can be denied. Yeah, I I have friends who have organized trips over there, and um, a lot of times uh, 
they, I mean, they come back and then they get a letter from the, is it Treasury Department or something? Yes, it is the <laughs> that Treasury you, Department. You, you, you owe like $10,000 for each person that went or something? Yes, and the reason I laughed when you said Treasury Department is because um, it always makes me laugh because there is a, the Treasury Department is responsible for collecting the money of, for violations of the embargo and they kind, they're kind of the watchdog. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and they have, um, 12 people working on Cuba, and they have two persons in the Treasury Department working on violations of other sorts of economic violations. In other words, when we always talk about following the money trail or terrorism, well, there's only two persons in the Treasury Department doing that for the rest of the world. Oh, for the rest of the world, wow. Including the Middle East. (laughs) And there's 12 on Cuba violations. <laughs> so if you go to uh, Cuba and pick up a poster and bring it back, then they want to know if you spent U.S. dollars. Uh huh. <laughs> exactly. Another funny thing once that I went came in, um, and someone had asked me to bring them a Che Guevara T-shirt from Cuba. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I brought them the Che Guevara T-shirt from Cuba, but I had neglected to write it on the form because I truly I forgot. Yeah, yeah. And when they saw the Che Guevara t-shirt, they confiscated it. And I just laughed and laughed because the U.S. government is confiscating the confiscators. <laughs> 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 they confiscated the Che Guevara t-shirt in customs. And you can get that anywhere now. <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, U.S. Really. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I, I think he doesn't get any uh, royalties from the person who... Um, no, that picture. I think right. not. I read that. If not, he would be Bill Gates. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, uh, we're talking with uh, Vivian Lesnick Wiseman, who's the director of a uh, new documentary, The Man of Two Havanas, about her father, Max uh, Lesnick. And uh, maybe you could talk about how did your father um, have this rapprochement with Castro um, after so many years here? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, I think that what happened was my father, when he left Cuba, he left um, in a small boat um, because he had taken a stand against the revolution. He had taken a stand against the allegiance with the Soviet Union, but at that time, that was really anti-revolutionary. Uh, right. um, so he was against the Cuban government, against the revolution, and then he came to Miami. Uh, everyone who left uh, to Miami was considered having betrayed the revolution, but sure. but my father, who was active, actively against, you know, wrote many editorials against the government, was, you know, a well-known, and plus he had been a friend of Castro's, so there's a personal betrayal involved as well, because mm. they had a personal relationship. So it's very interesting when my father goes back after the demise of the Soviet Union. Well, my father did go in, during the Carter administration, but he went as as uh, one with a group of many people, and he uh, he d- didn't go on just one on one. So, but when he went back um, after the demise of the Soviet Union, my father thinks believes that it is his um, uh, mission, his 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 duty to go back and try to bring about a better life for the Cuban people. Um, and really through his activism opposing the embargo. So he goes back to Cuba, and Castro asks to see him. And um, my father, of course, meets with Castro, and they just resumed their old personal relationship. Um, And in the film, my father uh, 
tells the story about how his first question was, well, why did you leave? And my father says, because I was against the relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, and Castro mm -hmm. pauses and replies, if you had been in my position, you would have had to do the same in order to save the revolution. And then I cut because I think that my father, uh, at this point, he knows more than he knew then, and he did not know that as early as the Eisenhower administration that there were that the American government was actively trying to overthrow the Cuban government, infiltrate the government, and assassinate Castro. Right. But there were so many attempts to. Uh, assassinate him. Mm -hmm. There's a BBC documentary called 657 Ways to Kill Castro. <laughs> <laughs> and I think six, 652 of those were, were, were uh, dictated by the CIA. <laughs> uh, I indexed a book by Ralph McGeehy, who was a CIA officer in Cuba, and he was on the trail of Castro um, in maybe the 50s or something, mm -hmm. and 60s, early 60s. And he... Uh, he 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 found he he found the medicine that he was using, but at this hotel room or this room where he, he had he had they had left in her hurry, so he was like on the track. But then he later came out and um, wrote a book about the CIA that was critical of the CIA. Mm. So he became one of these uh, so-called traitors to the CIA. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard of that book. Yeah, and so uh, anyway, so um, so uh, there w there was persistent attempts, of course, to to kill him. Yeah, and. And do you see the the with Raul Castro in power? Do you see uh, a big change? Well, we've seen many changes. I think that it, the most important thing is symbolically. It's even though it, Raul Castro is very close to his Raul Castro, Fidel Castro's brother is very close to Castro's age, and he's the head of the military. I think that symbolically, the fact that the uh, non plus ultra leader of Cuba for 47 years, um, decided that it was time to not allow himself to be reelected. As president, um, you know, it's very symbolic, and it allows for new changes that really couldn't take place while Castro was, was in power, and we've seen a lot of changes. Um, I'm surprised at how quickly they've come. Um, I'm sure you've been following them. But for those that yes. don't know, Cubans were not allowed to have cell phones, and now they're allowed to have cell phones. Of course, it costs this exorbitant amount. It's very it's symbolic because Cubans don't have you know access to hard currency. Um, Cubans, when when Cuba opened up to tourism uh, uh, in 1993, uh, the Cuban nationals were not allowed to uh, stay in hotels, uh, mm -hmm. and now that ban has been lifted as well. Very quickly, a lot of new things. I think the most important one is probably the least flashy, which is that um, the, the the Cuban government has found that the most um, the most uh, the the most efficient farming comes from the small farmers that own their own plots of land, hmm. and uh, it's about ten percent of the farming and ten percent of the of of that type of scenario where they own their small plots of land produces 40% of the food that's being eaten in Cuba. Wow. So they're expanding that program and they are supporting with, you know, tools and fertilizer the, the small farms and they're expanding that program to give out, to distribute more, farm, more farmland to small farmers that will work until it themselves and derive the profit themselves. Um, that 
it just shows that that the type of of uh, economic system is very much a circumstantial one mm-hmm. and not an ideological uh, position. Um, and I also think that um, with the lifting of the embargo, we'll see very, very, very quickly a lot of changes in Cuba. Um, I th- I've personally spoken to um, diplomats and people that would know that say that everything except the core advances of the revolution, and that's the universal medical care, the um, the you know the high educational level, and um, the uh, some of the you know the social justice uh, yeah. uh, behind you know the programs of the revolution. Aside from those things, those things need to be preserved. That really you know it, it's a it's an experiment, and 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 you know foreign investment. Um, travel, you know, everything. It's open to everything, including elections. But do you think there will be this neoliberal kind of economic policy put in place? I think that policy is going to be, I mean, what, they, what the Cuban government wants is a type of socialism. Uh, demo, uh, and we, I, I would like to see a democratic socialism. socialism. Yeah, yeah. Because in, uh, even in Vietnam, the you know they've been welcoming Western enterprises and all that, and um, and money from you know Ford Foundation and all that. But the the, uh, the the sad thing is that there is no free medical care anymore. Mm. And you would think in a communist country that would be kind of the you know the basis of it. Uh, exactly. But, yes. So I I wonder if that would happen in Cuba also. Well, I don't think it would happen with. Uh you know, unless there was a, a complete collapse. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because but, that really is the core. You know, exiles abroad always, exiles outside the country always uh, hope and expect a collapse, but it doesn't seem to happen usually. No. no. Yeah. I mean, because I think if you're outside the country, it's harder to influence the country. When you're outside, you, you're really, they, they don't really care about you outside except as a threat. Exactly, exactly. That's why it's so important. That's the irony of, of the U.S. policy toward Cuba. It's isolated Cuba so that Americans can't visit Cuba. Um, now I'm not talking about Cuban-Americans. I'm talking about U.S. citizens. Um, in, in, we U.S. citizens, can, um, unless they fall within the narrow exceptions to the embargo, cannot visit Cuba. And that exchange, that uh, friendly, you know, casual relationship, uh, as well as cultural exchange, artists going back and forth, that that, that breeds, um, that communication and dialogue enriches cultures, but also opens them up politically. I mean, it, it can't, it, a society cannot stay closed when their borders are open. Uh, it's the, uh, the Internet is penetrating, right? I mean, so, yes. so there, a lot of people do have, uh, there are Internet cafes where you can go, right? More, more and more Internet every day. And so uh, the young people actually probably are, are searching, Googling, and doing all sorts of stuff on, online. I'm not exactly sure how, m- how much computer activity there is. I don't think there's very much yet. And also Your average the, Cuban doesn't have a computer. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I was trying to think that maybe there's this inverse relationship with if a country is not as uh, uh, developed, then there's more actually Internet cafes than a, in a developed country. Because yeah, in a developed country, you have it in your own home or office. 
That's true. I see that because I was just in Chiapas, Mexico. Yeah. And you see internet cafes everywhere. We don't see them here. Um, and so it's a very, it's a communal thing. Yes. It's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, do you feel that this, uh, how, how, what has been the impact of your film? I know in the, in Newport Beach, uh, <laughs> there was a Cuban American who was very upset that you didn't criticize Castro yes. in your film. Yes. Uh, well, you know, um, I actually, I'll, I'll take up his, his, uh, comment here. The reason that I don't criticize Castro in the film, and undeniably there's many things that can be criticized uh, of, uh, throughout the history of the revolution, um, is because my film is not about the Cuban Revolution. My film is about the exile community and the U.S. policy toward Cuba. I'm an American citizen, and I feel comfortable in uh, criticizing the U.S. policy toward Cuba, as well as shining light on the Cuban-American exile community, my community. Um, I think that films that are critical of Cuba have come out of Cuba. Um, and I think that there's a film that's doing the festival circuit at the same time that as my film called The Sugar Curtain. Yeah. It's extremely critical of Cuba, and both my film and that film won a first prize at the Havana International Film Festival. Wow. Uh, and it's extremely critical. Um, and it is, but it's from an insider, someone who grew up in Cuba. So I think that from, it, it's a kind of cultural imperialism. If I go to Cuba and from the outside I decide that this is wrong with Cuba and that's wrong with Cuba and Castro did this and that. I mean, on a personal level, I can talk to people about it as sure. a, as a plain citizen, but, uh, you know, I think I have a responsibility as a filmmaker to really, uh, you know, I have to have a moral authority to criticize, and I don't have one, to go to another country and tell them what's wrong with what they're doing, especially in light of what we're doing to Cuba. How about uh, in terms of filming? Was it hard to go back and film? Was there a lot of red tape? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there was, uh, in order to film in Cuba, I had to go to the Treasury Department, the, the infamous Treasury Department with the 12 persons checking off violations to Cuba. And oh, the red tape here, the red tape <laughs> yeah. in the U.S. The Guevara uh-huh. t-shirts, yeah. So I, I got a license from the Treasury Department, which they readily gave me to make my documentary. Um, it took, You know, it takes paperwork, you have to get a lawyer, it's a pain, but it was, you know, it, it was doable and I have a license. How about the other side? Uh, the other side, yeah. I'm uh, very privileged. Um, it was very easy for me. I don't think it would be as easy for at just any for any for everyone else, because um, my father's best friend from the university days was uh, is a uh, the head of the Cuban Film Institute and now uh-huh. as well as the head of the film festival. Uh-huh. And so when I wanted to film my film, I went directly to him. He's one of the persons that I interview in the film, Alfredo Guevara. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, he talks about my father, his my father and his friendship with Castro because he's also a good friend of Fidel Castro. So uh, I was very lucky because it was more on a personal level. He, you know, facilitated everything for me. So I didn't have to go through channels that another filmmaker might have to go through. Will your film be shown at the Havana Film Festival? It was shown at the Havana Film Festival in December. Oh. Um, it was shown, they played it once, and uh, it was filled out, and we received a standing ovation. And, uh, at the, and we also received a first prize choral for a film made by a non-Latin American um, 
first prize. So uh, where it was not shown was at the Miami International Film Festival. We received a decided no from that. And is that... uh is that run by Cuban Americans? No, it's the, it's not run by Cuban Americans, but it really is part of the. You know, it's one of the sponsors is the city of Miami, and the city of and and um, all of Miami. You know, when it has to do with anything that has to do with Cuba, is run by Cuban Americans and of the right wing ilk. So and you know, they knew that they couldn't run that film, and so they didn't <laughs> because the the city gave. Uh, or named uh, one of the days Orlando Bosch Day, right? Yes, exactly. Orlando Bosch, one of the culprits in the bombing of the Cubana airliner, <laughs> was he hailed as a hero. And actually, two days ago, I just couldn't believe I didn't have a camera to film this, but I, two days ago, Luis Posada Carrillo, the other yeah. uh, a culprit, he was given a, at a Miami social club, he was given an, 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 on, an honorary, and, you know, he was honored, and there was a big uh, social event to honor uh, the hero, Luis Posada Carrillo. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, yeah it's uh, over here, they, uh, the city councils in different cities have, uh, in Westminster, for instance, passed a, a kind of communist-free zone so that you can't have communists visiting uh, with, uh, with a parade down Westminster, which is the heart of Little Saigon. Oh. And so they passed legislation saying you can't have that. And also you, you have... You cannot? To, you cannot have communists come officially. Of course, they've come, but not come. Up. <laughs> well, they, they haven't Miami had a parade. had that type of law until very recently, but the ACLU right. um, challenged it, and they won. And it was that no state, uh, no city funds or and or state funds could be used. You know, could be given to any any um, you know. Uh, institute or school or you know film festival because there was a, a uh. problem with a you know art museum any the, any public monies that you know that they could not uh, have anyone from cuba you know if they if they played a cuban film or if they had a scholar from cuba which was legal obviously for scholars from cuba to come to the united states recently they haven't come because of this tightening but yeah. a, a cuban scholar could come to the united states to give a lecture but he could not come to give a lecture at miami-dade community college because then they would no longer have funds state funds so that was challenged so this is similar to yeah to the little saigon yeah they say you should challenge this one <laughs> the one in westminster yeah um, they should we have a uh, uh in terms of vietnamese uh, i brought film directors uh, a film director from vietnam to come and it's an interesting story because when he he was invited, he landed at San Francisco, and they um, they they noticed that the sponsoring organization, uh, this foundation, uh, had a PO box, and they asked him where he was going to stay. He's not going to stay in a PO box, <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't know. Of course, he didn't know. He had no idea where he was going to be uh, staying uh, throughout the tour because there were different groups that were college groups that were taking him on, and um, so they. The immigration, whatever you call the Homeland Security, went on the internet and uh, Googled his name mm. and, and found the leaflet I did <laughs> announcing his uh, talk here at UCI, uh. his film here. And so they said, oh, okay, <laughs> he can come in. <laughs> oh, you saved the day. So Google, and you, actually anybody can put up stuff on a website and <laughs> look at <into> it. <laughs> so I was amazed. Amazing. <laughs> that they would use Google. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. Uh, uh. Because uh, it was like he landed after, you know, 
after office hours, and so there was no way, nobody to contact at the office of the oh foundation. Oh my goodness! It was like at five o'clock or seven o'clock at night. You know, Amazing uh, in San Francisco. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Have you gone to the Cuban uh, Havana film? Uh, you said you, were you there when they showed you, you the film? Yes, I went. Yeah. Oh, so the reaction was good, huh? The reaction was very good. I wasn't sure because whenever you show films in like completely different environments, sure. like I just showed it in Mexico, and I wasn't sure exactly what the reaction would be because in Mexico there's so much corruption, and you know, it, they assassinate. They have assassinated political candidates. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it, it, so I thought, well, you know, maybe this thing, these things, they're so shocking to us, yeah. won't be so shocking over there. So I'm always, you know, I'm curious, you know, what's going to have an impact and what isn't. Uh, but yeah, it, there was, and in Cuba, there's a lot of things that um, Americans don't know about Cuba that I have to tell them so they understand my story, which you know they're infinitely aware of. So I thought, well, maybe they'll be bored. Um, but no, it, it went over very, very well. And, uh, there was a lot of things that they didn't know about the Cuban exile, which oh, sure. I think they found very interesting. Well, it's really good that they're open to uh, seeing the film. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Um, I, I just don't see, uh, I mean, it, it'll be hard, I think, to bring a film to Vietnam that talks about the exile community. Ah, I, it'll be very, I think it'll be, yes. it would be bad, <laughs> probably, whatever you say. Probably. I know, I know, yeah. you're right. The, uh, I know publications are considered... Uh, you know, from the from the exile community, are considered pro- uh, propaganda and uh, threat to national security ah, uh, over in Vietnam. Yeah, I see. Very analogous. Yeah. Are you going to go to Cannes next? Yes, I'm going to the market to see if um, to try to secure uh, dissemination of the film in Europe. Oh, good, good, yes. great. Good luck. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, thank you so much. We'll come to the end of our hour. Oh, We've thank you so much. we talking to. Uh, Vivian Lesnick uh, Wiseman, who is the director of The Man of Two Havanas. And what's your website? Uh, people uh, can get information. It's www.manoftwohavanas.com. So it's the name of the movie, manoftwohavanas.com. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank keep you in very touch. much. It's been an honor speaking with you, Dan. Oh, it's great talking to you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was a film director from... Uh, whose film showed at the Newport Beach Film Festival uh, a few days ago, uh, a week or so ago. And uh, it's a film about his father, who was a revolutionary in Cuba, left Cuba, broke off uh, relations with Castro, and then found out that the extremists in, Ca- in Little Havana were just too extreme for him. And he faced bomb threats, and eventually he had a reconciliation with Castro, and so this is a film about that life, the life of this woman who grew up in Miami as a little girl and under this uh, threat of his father, her father being killed by extremists and terrorists uh, such as Orlando Bosch. Uh, this is Dan Sang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. To pledge for our annual pledge drive to support the station and also this program and other public affairs programs, please call 824-5824-9249-824-5824. This is Dan Chang signing off for Subversity. We'll be, uh, there'll be information on the web, uh, uh, kuci.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G. 
for more information about the film and about pledging also.